when we don't take action, it's not because someone has stopped us in Australia, it's because we've chosen not to. I, I think, you know, in the school system, we've got to work together, to walk together, to change together. The world has never been changing more rapidly, dislocating the ways we work, learn and live. On the Learning Future podcast, we discuss the knowledge, skills and dispositions we all need for our learning future, exploring insights with world-class educators, researchers, policymakers and leaders from across industries and across the world. Hi and welcome to the Learning Future podcast. I'm Luca Parry and today it's my delight to speak with Stephen Harris. Stephen is the co-founder and director of learning at Learn Life Barcelona. Learn Life started as the Dream School project, a state-of-the-art learning community and it is the first in a worldwide network of learning hubs which are meant to accelerate change in existing educational models. Stephen, previous to this, was the principal of Northern Beaches Christian School from 1999 to 2017. And under his leadership, the school gained international recognition as a, a leading and cutting edge organization. Stephen also founded the Sydney Center for Innovation in Learning and has received far too much recognition for me to mention all of them. Uh, but it's a real delight to speak with you, Stephen. Thank you for joining us. I'm very happy to chat. Always like chatting. Anything to do with learning and life? Well, let's get straight into it. What's something that you've learned recently? I, I wish I had learned Spanish more recently. <laughs> <laughs> so so if, I, if I look at the reverse side of what I haven't learned, I learned that if I'm more diligent, I would be learning far more. Um, but in the bigger picture of life, <laughs> I've, I've learned that uh, it's possible to um, I guess work remotely. I mean, that's the biggest lesson for me in the last 12 months is we've all been forced into different circumstances with the pandemic. Mm. Um, mm. But I guess I've learned how to make relationships and collegial sort of um, productivity through a Zoom lens, which is yeah. I had never really pushed myself to do before. Because, of course, you're in Sydney today, although you would normally be in Spain, in Catalonia, in Barcelona. Uh, so that's a really interesting, really interesting reflection about, you know, the accelerant that COVID has been, as well as the disruptor that it's also been. Take us into the big idea that you've been exploring um, through your work, but frankly, through your contribution across, you know, a great many number of years now in education. Yeah, I, I guess there's the rebellious side of me, which said, why not? And and as a person who ultimately disliked school intensely by the time I finished it myself, having been through three different countries, three different education systems and about seven schools, um, I did finish up being extremely good at avoiding school. I, I knew exactly how to do it and how to get away with it and still do well in exams. So that used to really annoy everyone. Um, but I, when I finished up going to university, I discovered that I really loved teaching. And, and and that for me was a, um, I guess, a redirection. But then I brought into that right from the start the notion that wh why are things being done the way they're done? They're stupid. You know, why have these rules? Why have these um, expectations? Why have this curriculum? So so I've always been happy to question things, um, and also always been interested in sort of background research to do with neuroscience, to do with, um, you know, relationships, to do with all of those things that ultimately uh, create safe learning environments for people. So 
I guess my journey as well. I, I, I trained for both primary and secondary. I first sort of 12, 14 years of my teaching, I did teach every grade, primary, <laughs> kindergarten through to year 12. I That's experience. Yeah, yeah. So I guess for me that was pretty good. Um, I, I guess the fun year that I had was 1983. I got seconded to Norfolk Island and you know, had a completely different experience with kids who had never seen traffic lights or skyscrapers or jet planes even at that stage. Um, wow. But again, it left me with lots of questions. You know, why do we do things in certain ways? Um, came back and finished up. You know, after a turn of events, being deputy principal of a school in charge of welfare, and the big questions in my mind were, you know, why had we had such archaic approaches to discipline in Australian schools? You know, why were people still talking about the cane? Why were they still talking? You know, all of these ridiculous things, which were oh, wow. totally, um, in my mind, from the previous century. Um, I had a role which was to help people shift from from one perspective to another. So I guess that's where I've my sweet spot has been, helping a community quietly shift but radically shift. And then when I got the chance to be a principal of my own um, sort of <laughs> space with, with a team that were ready to change, um, that was an outstanding opportunity at Northern Beaches. And, you know, the original brief was to grow the school from 250 up to about 1,250 and in doing so to learn from the rest of the world. So I guess in that context as well, the whole process of collective envisioning came about. Um, you know, I, I can remember one of the most profound moments of learning at that time was going to sort what was called Salisbury Enterprise High School in, in Adelaide, um, yes. where there was an amazing team who were uh, putting together, I think Helen Papitis was the principal at the time, you know, we got greeted at the gate by kids who were bursting to become our tour guide for the day. And what struck me was that their oracy levels were off the scale um, in an area where you would think it was anything but going going through. And we, we had a fantastic day being hosted by these kids, taking us around all of the different enterprise sections of the school, including in their sort of special needs learning unit. They had, they had really good things going with enterprise learning you know, back in the early 2000s. Um, but the moment that really struck me was we were in the middle of a conversation and the message came through that some kid had sort of nicked off school and the lady who we were talking to literally threw her high heels onto the table and went running. You know, she wasn't going to let that kid disappear. Wow. And I just thought, okay, that's that's commitment, that's personal, that's, that's, that's fishing for every lost, mm. lost person. And Deep I guess... Yeah. Deep sense of care, and I guess that 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 really impacted me that particular day because mm. so many schools are happy to sh shuffle problems around. You know, um, you know, I guess that's one of the worries that I, I had as a school principal is the expectations placed on you to move someone on if people didn't think that they, you know, should stay. And and ultimately, I made a decision to say I, I wouldn't do that. I, I could lead someone to know, to recognise that they were in the wrong community and the wrong culture and that they might be far better off in a different culture. Um, but I, I think that that desire to to be the advocate for the child that 
was on the outside. And, and I guess now is the perfect storm, isn't it? But we've got a world mm-hmm. in disruption. We've got kids who are expressing anxiety, stress and everything else, you know, to the nth degree. And we're also suddenly no no longer as 2030 in the next decade, it's this decade. And, you know, all of the statistics about the jobs that kids will be doing, that, which haven't even been invented yet, they're all very real. And, and, and I think, you know, for me, um, the urgency is higher than ever, but people don't seem to recognise that. It's really powerful, Stephen. That was and a long answer. Sorry. No, it's great. It, it, I mean, dawns on as, as you're you're sharing that. I mean, the the kind of formation of your worldview as as an education leader now working globally, um, and also someone with deep experience and and leadership experience in a school in a kind of a place based school community as well. And those formative experiences of Norfolk Island of, of visiting a school now, which decades later, you're you know you've taken some powerful lessons from and they form, you know, a, a part of the kind of paradigm, so to speak. I'd love you to share with us um, from where you currently sit in the constantly emergent world, right, disrupted, reimagining world that we're in. What do you think the necessary change in the paradigm is? Because I think, I think a lot of people would nod and say, yes, things need to change. I mean, there are still a few parts of society that might say, no, let's not do that. But I think they're in the, the significant minority. But I, I wonder, it's it's the articulation of a new capital N narrative, which I think is really interesting. How do we kind of create the urgency, as you say, lest we, we kind of be, it's more apathy, I think, or confusion or over-analysis that paralyzes us. What's your view on that? I think it's having the aha moments and then being prepared to act Again, one of those was on one of your recent podcasts with Valerie Hannon. Uh, mm. You know, I, I, I chat, I've chatted with Valerie many times, and she was she was presenting at one of the Wise conferences in Doha, mm-hmm. and she had the um, the S curve, and everything that was thwarting change was all because there was this anchoring of the any new system or any new thinking to the old system by the assessments and the examination system. And so while that anchoring still happened, which literally is tying anyone that wanted to change back to the old system, that the that crossover space of angst was created because people couldn't leave that. Now, that, that led me to think and say, you know what, a lot of what we've been doing in schools has been shuffling the deck, you know, repainting the ship. Mm. It's, it's actually not being prepared to genuinely change. And so I thought, you know, okay, I thought that I was running an innovative school back in the early 2010s. And then I thought, no, you know, we're, we're actually not, we're not radical enough yet because, because we're not placing our resources to, to grow that change in a sustainable pace, but in a deliberate pace. And so we, we then... I can remember a process with the executive at the time where I said, okay, if, if no one loses status or salary, are we prepared to change every executive function so that it matches where we want to go, not where we were? And I got buy-in on that. And so we were able to re reconfigure the executive around four pillars, and, and that was um, 
people who were excellent standing up in front of a community, whether it was kids, parents, or who were educators. You know, you know I, I guess they were the um, the newsreaders, the ones that could sort of do it. Um, then we had the people who were very good at logistics, and interestingly, across the school, many of those weren't people in the executive. In other words, we we started to use talents that were just been sitting there, um, that had been wasted. We then focused on growth, and that was growing the students, the parents, and the teachers. So we had all three, you know, all three components of the community into that growth paradigm. But then it left me with, with this handful of people who, who I worked out were my SAS troopers. They, they were the change agents who could be dropped into different sections of the school, coach on the shoulder, and then leave, going, going, going through. And... Um, that really accelerated change. And I, I guess the opportunity for me in Learn Life in Barcelona now is that having to, chosen to work in, a, in an, a learning community that intentionally was outside the government system initially because we, we were targeting 16-year-olds and older, we had the freedom to um, basically do whatever we thought we should do according to our research and our understanding and that... The core change for me was to get everyone to realise it's not technology, it's not space, it's not all of these things, it's simply relationship. Now, if kids come in and feel that they're accepted for who they are in a non-hierarchical relationship, they will change rapidly. You know, all, all of the emotional baggage that they might come with, it'll still be there, but they'll start dealing with it they'll, that because... You're not judging them for it. You're just you're saying here you're welcome, and then then the other key question in that context is not what do they have to change to fit in, but what do we have to alter in order for it to work? Mm. And that might mean then doing as we've done in Barcelona, Learn Life. You know that there, there aren't timetables, there aren't terms, there aren't bells. There's now all of that got wiped out. Um, there are building blocks based on the conceptual gaps that kids might have. Mm -hmm. And there are schedules which they co-create with us. Um, but it's structured. It's not sort of a loose free-for-all. And it's ultimately studio-based because I think this generation that's coming up now, if we have to prepare them for this world that we don't really understand or know, is it, it is going to be small teams. It's going to be studio-based. It's going to be creative-based and and. Mm -hmm. And I think the sad thing is that many teachers have never experienced that themselves, and so therefore they yeah. find, they, they struggle with it. So yeah. that's why that's why I love Learn Life because we're able to do those things. Well, I'd love to oh, your point around being like when someone when a young person walks into a classroom or into a school, a learning environment, a studio, you know how seen, heard, valued, and loved, frankly, do they feel? to be part of them. I mean, that really, I think, is the foundation of everything that makes us truly human. Because each of us uh, has lived experience of working in different organisations with other human beings, right? and we know about the role of organisational culture. Uh, and there's a wonderful book that um, I read recently, Humankind by Rutger Bregman, and this idea that actually human beings will behave as we treat them. So if we expect young people to work and in these live, learn in these particular ways, well, then they'll rise to that. But if we expect them to be passive and compliant, well, then that'll be their lived experience and eventually they'll, they'll, they'll walk out. Uh, I'd love for you to take us through the difference in your mind between 
organizational devices and learning devices. And so Ken Robinson used to talk about this as well. Bell, you've mentioned a bit bells, the 45-minute lessons, timetables, you know, teacher at the front, students kind of as the absorb. You know, if we think about the traditional models and the organizational aspects, as opposed to what you're really playing around with very directly uh, in terms of the learning principles, you know, which actually fit into this new learning paradigm, you know, that many, they're many and very diverse. It's all part of the ecosystem. But what, what's, what's been your experience, the difference between the way we organize learning for uh, our own ability to make sense of it versus what, how actually learning happens as messy, collaborative, uh, particularly as you shared the example of what you did with your executive team when you were a principal, of, of saying the org- it's the organizational elements that is an enormous lever that we can play around with. I think ultimate, well, ultimately and initially, learning has to be fun. I, I can remember in my desperation to push my language, Spanish language vocabulary further, I said to myself over a weekend in Barcelona, okay, I'm not going to eat anything unless I can ask for it in Spanish. And I didn't want to live on potatoes. So I, I forced myself to broaden broaden my range. Um, I, I guess I, I had a clear purpose and objective in mind and I understood what I was doing. And then I was choosing the the activities and the learning that I needed to match that goal going through. Now, if we take that sort of that thinking back into the school context, the the goal for me is that we want kids to be self-determined learners, that they can work out what is their goal and how do they get there. And that involves self-direction. It involves all of the things to do with learner agency. But then you've got to go back to the flip side and say, what is it that prevents that? And I think the really big issue is that we don't do anywhere near enough reflection on control and compliance. You know, one of the things I used to smile about, laugh about and cry about at Northern Beaches was, yeah. you know, we, we had some amazing spaces and things happening inside those spaces, but either the kids or the teachers, the story of how did you get kids into that space? You know, they were still lining up and I just thought this is so wrong. No, it, and I, I didn't want to sort of just open it up like a uh, a New Year's Eve, you know, push for the for the train stuff. <laughs> that, that that wouldn't work either. So I, I challenged some people to say, could they change the narrative of how did you bring kids into it into these spaces without them lining up and then actually choosing gender based lines themselves when we hadn't even mentioned the word gender to them. Um, and some teachers did quite a good job. They met kids at spots in the school, in the park, and you know, in, in a playground garden or something else, and then they just walked together like a family in, into those spaces. But it was very hard for them to sustain that and do it every time because of the that sense of urgency that you've got to do things and get the kids and get them going, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I, think, I think the biggest dilemma that we, we are facing at the moment for teachers is that teachers are still assessed on their capacity to manage 30 kids or 25 kids in a 64-square-metre space watched by a supervisor who's going to comment on their behaviour management skills, you know, and even if they're wanting them to do things with student-centred learning, it's still solo and it's still control and compliance. Yeah. We've, we've got to intelligently question why, why are we trying to control kids and what would happen if we gave them the agency where they can start doing it themselves? And it's the same with teachers. You know, it's, as a school leader, are you actually trying to control your staff or are you actually empowering them 
to start learning what they should be doing by giving them the, the agency to do it. So I, I think, you know, when we talk about things like learner agency or we talk about things like control and stuff, we've got to actually start with ourselves and start that introspection and, and self-awareness of where am I actually holding on to it? Um, and, and, it's, and it is, there, there, there will be tensions. I mean, it's, I mean, if you think about a society, we have to have rules to do with which side of the road we drive on. We have to have certain regulations and stuff, but we've also got to be intelligent not to go overboard with them. So you, you've got to know when, you know when is there too much regulation and when, when is there not enough. And I think as a society, the world has learned an incredible amount in the last 12 months to do with masks, to do with a whole range of issues, to do with the pandemic. But then the government's challenge is to know when do they, when do they pull back and actually allow the society to self-manage because they can't keep managing us forever. And it's the same. It's the same dilemma, the same tension, right down to the school context, mm. is to say, when do we, when do we pull back? And and I mean, for me, the biggest elephant in the room has always been the examination system, because no matter what, parents still panic about it. Not the yeah. kids; parents panic. Yeah, I'd love to, I'd love for you to talk to us about that further. Uh, particularly through what you're doing at Learn Life, but beyond. I mean, in our previous conversation, Stephen, um, in a couple of different fora, you often, you know, you, you'll talk to a photo of, you know, a thousand kids sitting outside in fog, physically distanced, you know, undertaking a standardised high-stakes examination. There is this kind of sense of validity that exists at the moment in the community about an exam, a big test, you know, to rank and file and then enable some people to progress forward and others not to. Where do you sit on this? How do we move beyond that paradigm? Because clearly it's, and many people are saying this, including Peter Shergold in the Shergold Review, you know, they are, it is corrupting the entire education system from the top down in terms of K-12 in particular. So where to from here? Look, again, if we, if we look at the, uh, the radical side through to the pragmatic side, the radical side of me says the examination system is the big lie. It, it's, it's the big falsehood that's been pushed by everyone, including the media, um, and because it makes people panic. Um, you know, governments can rush back and, you know, over the last three or four decades, how many education ministers who have, have I heard their only speeches about reverting to the three R's? You know, that they, they have this little stock standard sentence which they throw into their into their publicity speech when they remember to do it, um, you know, once in their minister period. <laughs> and then that's it, nothing changes. Um, that is so dangerous because... I think at the moment we're, we're stuck because we, we're not genuinely looking at the alternatives. Now, there are some... You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a wild enthusiast for badging and for some of the things from um, the mastery models, but I can see that there are benefits. What, what I would really love to be able to see is learner-curated portfolios where they, where they bring the best of themselves into a digital 
presentation which covers all aspects of where they're up to and so by the time they get to a transition out of the school system into something else they're able to show what they're capable of doing both as an individual as a group member as a uh, as a thinker as a creator that's where I think we should be going um, I know that last year when I heard that the exams were being cancelled, postponed, and governments didn't know what to do in Australia, let alone around the world, I thought, why not let the Year 12 simply do one of those access courses to university because, you know, you've got universities having to, to um, get rid of staff and you've got kids that want to get into university. Why not put those two groups together and, and let the universities actually bring the learners up to, up to speed with where they think they should be going through? I, I mean, it's a, the problem with an examination system is it's open to corruption, it's open to inequity. I, I hope people don't forget what they've learnt when they've seen into the houses of their kids and suddenly seen that that quiet child in Year 11 is quiet because they're exhausted. You know, they've been cooking the meal, they've been earning income, they've been doing all of the things for their family. It's not that they've been hiding from their essay. Um, I, I had a great conversation this week with a... A, uh, a person who, who was a parent at um, previous school and mm -hmm. had, had a son or has a son in year 11 and we, we, we got on to chatting and I said, look, you know, if you start thinking 2030, 2040, what is the relevance of the economics essay they're doing in year 11 now? It's going to be zilch. But the reality is the method, the format, the content will be not only forgotten, it will actually be replaced by other thinking going through. So therefore, until we can shift the community to genuinely be thinking, what what does it mean to have kids ready for this? It's no longer the world that's emerging, it's already there. Mm. You know, that, that, that's the other thing. I, I guess that reminds me as well of a another aha moment I had when I, I was presenting to a group of, um, of TAFE executive and um, somewhere in Australia, keep that one general, um, a lovely guy at the end of, it, of 45 minutes raised his hand and he said, can you explain to me what a startup is? And I just thought, gosh, if is that the gap? You know, that people who are working in a system where they're supposed to be helping kids understand how to create a job mm. have, haven't been given the the experience themselves to actually understand these things. And it's not their fault. It's, it's yeah. the fault of the system going through. Yeah. And I guess that, that was another big thing for me because I thought, I mean, it's partly, I guess, the learn life story for me is I love working in a startup because it's challenging. Yeah. And, and you've got to be ready to fail. You've got to be ready to shift. You've got to be ready to pivot. All of those things become mm. part of the process of starting things. How can we as adults help young kids do that if we've never experienced it ourselves? Yeah. Such it's such a great reflection because, uh, of course, overwhelmingly educators are phenomenal human beings, moral compass, you know, want to make a difference, like get up every day and, and serve their learning community. And yet there is this, this kind of gap which exists, I think, between, um, well, clearly what we learn at school and what is taking place outside. And, you know, the great schools is kind of dissolving their own walls and bringing in the community and operating as a learning ecosystem which is, of course, something that Valerie Hannon speaks to um, all the time. I'm really interested in how do you take people on this journey, Stephen? Uh, because the great thing about 
doing a greenfield development or being a foundation principal uh, or frankly being an entrepreneur you can kind of start from scratch and you don't need to reculture you know and yet what, what's what's your reflections on for educational leaders and for parents in particular because parents um often have really strongly held views which are always well intended <laughs> and sometimes just just prevent the school being able to evolve towards something we know is going to be more important in terms of the capabilities peace and well-being focus alongside the academic outcomes and growth how how do we do that well how do you take people on this journey okay so you you've given me the perfect platform to talk about my phd thesis Oh, about collective, <laughs> it's about, it, it was about collective envisioning. So, right. I, I guess take us, take us on the journey. Okay, for me, the, the journey of of growing something new is not about the one person. You know, it's, it would be a complete mistake to think that the visionary leader was going to bring about the change. And there's so much research from around the world that shows where it dies pretty fast if it's all based on one person. Um, it's the process of collective envisioning, which is critical. And I guess my opportunity was to research three different case studies who had all operated on collective envisioning in totally different um, countries and educational systems, but all came to exactly the same conclusion spot. And that was if a group of people can collectively, so that means it's not just the school leaders, it's actually the parents, the uh the wider community, the kids, the whole lot, if they can collectively envision what they want to go to, it's not a statement that you write, a vision statement that sits on the drawer or goes onto the web page. It's actually a, a blueprint for where you want to go. And the, the, the most practical way of doing that is I can remember, I've done it a few times, is actually writing a description for a page or two about what is it going to be like to walk into this space in 10 years' time or 20 years' time? What do I see? And the amazing thing about that is that when you do it and then you hide, <laughs> then you forget about it, when you come back to it, as I, I did find that um, back at Northern Beaches and I read it and I thought, hey, we, we've actually done almost of that. We've, you know, that, that, that blueprint which we collectively envisioned and we sort of captured in description has actually been our North Star. We've actually, we've, we've gone to it. And, and the point for me is that vision isn't vision if it doesn't grow immediately. If, you know, I, it, the, the, it, the, the team who might put together the statement, they're, they're creating the trunk. The rest of the community have to put the branches, the flowers, and the leaves on. And if that doesn't happen immediately, it's not vision. So, I, so I think again, that a lot of that's got to do with agency. Vision is vision if someone else can pick it up and can grow it themselves. And I, I think that's for me. You know, uh, there's the two guys in the music faculty from Northern Beaches um, who did an amazing job thinking of how music could be taught and delivered and experienced by kids in ways that I would never have imagined. Um, sure. And they created this most amazing sort of nightclub feel to the music space, which got all of the kids hooked going going in there. But you know, so vision vision is something. It's it's an active process. Um, the interesting thing is that there's the business world looked at vision back in the 1990s and you've got a lot of stuff by um, Peter Senge and, and uh, Cotter and a whole range of people mm. that it got, never got picked up by education, that the vision 
um, I can remember a previous, <laughs> um, be careful here, but a previous Minister for Education federally in Australia who was known for his music. Um, I went to go and hear him talk about vision and all I heard was money for the programmers that were happening around the country. And I thought, no, that's not vision. That's yeah. budget. That's just yeah. budget. You know, and, and you know, vision... Vision has to have a resource and a budget, but that's not, you know, the budget is not the vision going through. So, and, and do people have a, a pedagogic vision for their school? Do they actually have a vision for the relationships? Do they have a vision for all of these things, not just the oval, not just the new building, not just the toilet block, you know? So, that, <laughs> so vision is something which, which can be an incredibly powerful driver for change and for sustaining change, if you're prepared to enter into it seriously. That's that's fantastic, Stephen. Um, the kind of vision as an active component of all change. Well, and, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's envisioning. It's, it's an active. Envisioning. It's an active verb. It's not the noun. Yeah, well, that's fascinating. Yeah. Tell me then, we're, this is the Learning Future podcast, you know, and, of course, the premise is all of us, uh, we'll have to continually unlearn and relearn, playing off Toffler's quote, you know, for the rest of our lives, increasingly, rapidly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, COVID as an accelerant, everything else. If we do uh, envisage out to 2040 or even 2050, you know, the child born today, you know, what they're graduating, what, 2038. So, you know, as the saying goes, we'll grossly overestimate change in the next two years and grossly underestimate it in the next 10. Uh-huh. So two years will look like today, but 10 years will be quite different. What do you think the future of learning will be for, I don't even want to say the word schools, right? But for these learning environments, learning villages, learning studios, you know, kind of the emergent world, uh-huh. what do you hope um, and what, what might you say the trajectory is that we have at the moment? Um a little side note, you know, I get distracted, but you know, I love throwing out old term. <laughs> I love throwing out old terminology. That's the, that. That's a really important part of the change. As we think about going ahead, we mm. shouldn't be talking about schools. We shouldn't be talking about classrooms. We, we've actually got to talk in terms of the ecosystem terminology. We've got to talk about nice. communities and, and and learning spaces and learning hubs. And I, I think it's going to be personal because you know we're we're learning now that we can actually learn by ourselves when we've got the capacity online to, to find things. Um, I, I've, I've sort of talked about the stuff on in the, the Learn Life um, website. Personalised learning is all, it's a step in the right direction, but it's still done to people. It's, it's done yeah. by a computer algorithm or it's done by a teacher. Mm. Personal learning is when you actually know how to do it yourself. That, that's not going to happen in large mega schools. <laughs> so I, I, I think one of the things that will start happening in an ageing society, what I'd love to see happening, is that we will trade our schools. They'll become perfect retirement villages as the classrooms get turned into a little retirement apartment, which has got perfect wheelchair access already and everything else. And the, <laughs> the learning communities will go out into the, to the spaces that are already existing, whether it's an old factory, whether it's the, the local park. I love the Finnish concept of Helsinki being the learning space for the whole of, you mm. know, the, it's not just your school. You've got the whole of Helsinki to play with. That's your learning space. And they support that by giving free transport during the day for any, for, 
any class that's wandering around the space. Not only that, they mandate that you've got to spend at least half a day a week in every subject out out into this into this other space. I, I think what will happen in, by 2030, 2040 is that we will be forced to to learn together about how is the startup working, how is it struggling, how is this business developing, what does it mean for these communities who are disadvantaged, what does it mean for, you know, I think, I think we've all been in pain watching the struggle to do with... Um, you know, sort of the sexual assault issues and stuff lately in Australia, but we've also mm. had the, the whole Black Lives Matter stuff. We've got to get the kids to actually understand those things in real terms, and, and they're not going to do that by watching behind the news about it. They're going to learn about it by meeting the people and talking about it. They're, they're, mm. they're going to, they've got to do these things authentically. So I think the future is highly personal. It's it's together. So. The teacher's role is as as changed to becoming that guide, the mentor, the facilitator, and and that's an expert role. It's not just an easy role because they've got to be able to know when do they shift, when do you, when do you actually lead and guide, but when do you pull back so that it's got the agency that you know the kids now able to do it by themselves. Um, you know, there's so much there that we can explore, and then we've got to match that with the self curated presentation of what I can do you know mm. so that again we've got to get to that point and universities have to be able to accept that many are across the world you know I, I know that in the US there there are whole pathways into into universities now which are based not on an SAT in fact you can't mm. use them but it's based on what you can present in a, number, a range of criteria we've got to have that conversation in Australia you know some universities mm. have, have started at Swinburne I, I know is doing it with some schools um but we've got to have a genuine conversation about how do we match kids with their next step other than putting them through an exam, which puts them into the wrong course because mm. they think that they have to do something and yeah. discover that they don't want to do it. Yeah. There's a lot of powerful themes there, Stephen, you've spoken to. Self, self-determined learning, self-curated possibilities. And we should all care about this. Even governments in particular, it's human capital investing. You know, we actually don't want a young person exploring for three years and then deciding not to use the knowledge that they've gained because yeah. they're no longer passionate about it. We Really, there has to be a shift, I think, in the power dynamic here from command and compliance to liberation and exploration. Um, and and, and now's the time for us to speak up because governments are going to be focused on health and economy. But yeah. they're, they're not going to genuinely look at education in the next five years because they can't afford to. So we've mm. got to get... I guess that you know the <laughs> the tribes who understand where we have to go, they've got to actually start rising up and and leading the discussion. Mm. Fantastic, Stephen. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. Uh, my last question is, what is your take home message at this point from all the different work and projects you're exploring? And we're lucky we get to work together, at Learning Creates Australia, on a on a cool agency focused project. What um, what do you want to leave us with? Um, be curious and be courageous yeah, and question everything because if you don't, we've all got the capacity to take action. When we don't take action, it's not because someone has stopped us in Australia, it's because we've chosen not to. And I, I think, you know, in the school system, we've got, to, we've got to work together to walk together to change together. And so it's, it's, I guess, the together piece is important. 
the community piece is important, but the willingness to take the steps is a key one. Take the action, just do it. Yes, and often into the unknown. Yeah. Stephen, thank you so much. It's always a, a pleasure to speak with you and learn from you. Thank you for joining us for the Learning Future podcast. No problems. Thanks for listening to the Learning Future podcast. To find out more about our work, drop into thelearningfuture.com and follow us at Learning Future on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. Here's to building a world of thriving learners together.